listening to the Siani Podcast, opening up dialogue surrounding the key issues in sustainable agriculture and food. Welcome to the Siani Podcast with me, Sunil, and uh, David. So we're speaking with two members of Bitroot. Yes, I'm Alex. And I'm Niels. We're the founders of Bitroot, and uh, our mission is to decentralize food production by means of helping greenhouse farmers to set up a greenhouse if they so wish to and we help them go actually make a profit with it. And by that we're trying to fight against the cheap imports coming from the Netherlands for example or Spain, you know, all these cheap tomatoes coming from there. We think and we believe that Swedes can do as good or better with local produced tomatoes for example or cucumbers or anything like that. Okay. So take us, take us back to the start, how, how did you conceive of the idea of Bitroot and when did you start, why did you start Bitroot? Uh, that was me one and a half years ago or even more now and I had contact with a guy in Svalbard, so far north of Norway and he's a chef there, um, but he also wanted to reduce his import needs, so he started building a little greenhouse, but then in Svalbard it's really windy, so it doesn't look like a normal greenhouse, it's more like a dome, and it's pink because of the lights in there, uh, so they call it the purple house. Um, but anyways, he started growing vegetables and herbs in there to lower his food imports and use fresh vegetables in the kitchen, because he's a chef. Then he noticed that this is a lot of work, and it's actually a full-time job, so he couldn't be a chef, but he wanted to be a chef. And then anyways, we had contact and I started developing a concept for a technological solution for him, which would like take care of the greenhouse and would notify him about changes because temperatures are crazy up there. And so you have to take care of the greenhouse a lot. Um, but then after a while we noticed that this has a lot more potential and it's not only a solution for his little greenhouse there, but Sweden and even Germany, Netherlands, probably Spain, everywhere could use this system and then we kind of transformed it from this one project into a company and that became Bitroot. So it has been aligned with lowering food imports from from the very beginning. Okay. And are you an agronomist or, or how, how did you like how did no. you get started with it? I'm just a nerd and engineer. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was like, yeah, I want to help you, but can I do something technological for you? Can I hack something together? Mm. That's how it started. Okay. So how, how exactly does it work? So the idea is that if you would know about all plants, but not in the meaning of all plants as one, but every single plant or small groups, if you would know about them and their needs and what they're feeling right now, then you could act upon their needs. Say, if you have two sets of tomatoes and two sides of the greenhouse and one has more sun than the other or one has less water than the other, then you could, for example, with the watering, say, let's only water this side and not the other one because they're not thirsty, why would I water them? Um, and then you save the water on the other side. And that you can also do with other parameters, say, fertilizing nutrients in the soil or lighting, like when it's dark, kind of happening in Sweden sometimes. Um, then you would switch only on the lights for the plants that actually need light now. And so that's really good when you have mixed greenhouses. So if you have a greenhouse with only basilica, the basil, then I mean, then you can assume that everything's the same, maybe. Mm -hmm. You could still say, maybe we're better when we're looking at the single plant or the small groups, 
but you could do fairly well without doing that. But if you have a greenhouse with tomatoes, cucumbers, chilies, some herbs and flowers, then you might as well assume that all are different. So if you then go down to the single plant and check on their needs, then you can do better. That's yeah. really interesting. So you have a way to reduce the modern cropping. Yeah. The reason why we think this can help in actually decentralizing food production is because a lot of that work is being done manually today. You have to, the, the farmer has to employ people to go and check or he has to do it himself. Or, and, and then if, if you don't do it, then there's a big risk of harvest loss. For example, I don't know, we had heard one story or actually two stories, the, the, the quite the opposite. One story was that he finally could take some vacation over Easter and Easter in Sweden can still be kind of cold nights. So he had this central kind of uh, climate uh, controlling system that Neil said is good for monocultures. He had that installed in his greenhouse from the 80s, really old, but it still works as one central sensor that measures the temperature and everything for the greenhouse. And that thing uh, was supposed to take care of the, uh, the windows. And then he also had to employ someone just to make sure that everything works. But since it was the night, that employed person wasn't there. And the sensor uh, said close the windows, but the windows didn't close. There was some malfunction in the window closing thing. So it was a cold night and all plants that were under windows, which was basically half the crop, died because it was so it's, it's an ecological it's, it's you know it's a lot of money mm -hmm. he lost like five hundred thousand crowns or something just just those couple hours and the other story was the exact opposite this the one sensor he had said it was minus seven in the greenhouse so the heating system went on and basically cooked all the tomatoes oh, one nice. million crowns in damage just because he didn't have the, the higher resolution of of you know taking uh, care of those seeing the greenhouse or something so how, how does Bibu do this? Do you guys use sensors on, on individual plants or how is it that it's adapted to specific plants needs? We uh, developed a, you can imagine it like a lunchbox and it has a lot of sensors in there which uh, kind of feel all the environment because plants can't move away so they're really dependent on their environment so we don't connect into the plant but we connect to the environment very close to the plant so then we know how much light is right next to the plant or how much water is right under the plant and stuff like that. Um, and then it has radio modules so we can deploy a number of these lunch boxes in the greenhouse with all the sensors and send all the data back to a base station and then we can analyze it on a server and provide nearly or real-time data and control for the farmer with a very simple app. So he's connected to the plants, like on a much faster level. He doesn't, and he doesn't even have to be in the greenhouse. So he could go on vacation for a week uh, if he knows, like, okay, there's no much tasks that have to be done right now. Say so I just have to wait for the plants to be growing. Uh, but I want to double check if, like, the window is actually closing, or if, yeah, if the window is actually closing. And the one thing that you also sol solve with that solution, since it's so widespread in the greenhouse and so yeah, multi-dimensional in a way, mm -hmm. uh, is, you know, if one sensor says it's minus seven because the sensor is broken, but still the signal says minus seven, yeah, but then 200 other sensors say, no, 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 it's 25 degrees, don't worry. So then the heating system doesn't have to go up. But if you're dependent on one, one sensor, mm -hmm. then you're, you know, it's, it's not good if that one sensor goes nuts. Okay, so there's so like a fail-safe. Kind of, but that's like, that's just like in the system. That's just based on the concept because you decentralize the sensors in a way. 
So it's not that we have to build in redundancy or whatever, like you do in planes, then you build in redundancy, you double and triple everything. But I mean, that's just the concept of like having things more. Okay. Yeah, we, we used to say we're creating the internet of plants. But we have to see if that term is IP available or not. I don't know. I think there's some patent on it, but we would like to call it the internet. Basically, what we try to do is <laughs> connect the plants to the internet. So you noticing little microclimates happening right. across the greenhouse. That's exactly. the yeah, that's the, the plan. Yeah. yeah. And what what scale do you have? Like what type of greenhouse? Okay, how did it start with the one in, in Svalbard? Yeah, that's a small uh, greenhouse and yeah, that's tiny. That's just like twenty square meters, and it's round, so it's hard to guess. But I think it's like twenty, maybe forty square meters. So really tiny actually. But he's, I mean, he's also in the startup phase, so he has to start small, just like we do. But um, right now we're focusing on the small and medium-sized farmers because they're not so big and so profitable because of the huge size that they can afford one single greenhouse for every plant. So what I said earlier with the basil greenhouse and the tomato greenhouse. So they, the smaller ones, they have the mixed greenhouses. So then it's actually worth having the different microclimates and knowing about them in the greenhouse. So that's what we're focusing on right now. But then we're also exploring other markets, which would be like for your private greenhouse in the garden, if you have one, or for for the plants on your window. So the, the reasoning or the idea is, if, as ma if many people have the, the opportunity to be greenhouse farmers, then we think they will go for that. So we don't, we don't focus on the huge ones because we think there's so much profit there. We think, okay, give the smaller ones or the ones that want to be smaller the possibility to do this and you know not having to invest 120% of their time. Starting it on the side and then be, I don't know, be self-sufficient for your own needs or maybe sell on local markets, you know, cut the, the, the long transport ways. So is it um, linked up to the, like water and inputs as well? That's the plan for the future. Uh, so right now we do the monitoring mm -hmm. and visualization so that you don't have to be a data scientist to get all the data and understand what's actually happening, but then you get it like in a second. You just look at your phones and okay, everything's fine now. Like, oh, I have to do that. Uh, but then for the future, we plan to close the circle so that the system can control itself. So when the plant, uh, when the sensors near plant tomato 30, 37, says like, hey, we need water here, then the watering system can switch on that valve and it's like, yeah, here have water. And then the sensor can say like, okay, that was fine, thanks, we're, we're done here. Wow. So then you can have a fully autonomous greenhouse in a way. And then you can, then even a small farmer, like, okay, you don't see the parentheses, all of them. <laughs> but uh, a small farmer can be a big farmer, but still don't have to employ like 100 people. Because the greenhouses can take care of themselves in a way. So the farmer becomes more of a manager, instead of like knees in the soil, hands in the soil, all time hard hustling. He can be more of a manager and like or orchestrator for the greenhouses. So do you do you think this is a good way to get people who don't know that much about gardening into gardening and greenhousing? That's our plan. We try to what we try to do is with the system we're building and the data we're collecting. We're trying to. That's why also that's also one of the reasons why we now work with these small and medium-sized farmers that have huge experience that we try to build their experience into our system. What we monitor now, we can later put into the system and make like this intelligent kind of system that someone that is interested but doesn't know much say, okay, 
just look at your phone and your phone will tell you that your greenhouse or your plants are feeling good. And then maybe at some point in the future, may have like maybe an AI, uh, some thing that the greenhouse controls itself, as, as Neil just said. Mm -hmm. And on the side, we can, since we're collecting that much data, and basically the farmer can teach the system because the farmer is just doing what he's always been doing and he's had, he has huge experience. Maybe learned it from his granddad already. So it's like years and years of experience. And then he teaches the system so the system kind of knows how to grow a good tomato. And, but you don't have, you're not limited on that your granddad and dad are teaching you. Because our system can learn from like hundreds of farmers all over the world or all over the country if you deploy it on many farms. Uh, so then all farmers teach the system how to grow the perfect cherry tomato. So then you can do, go down to the, like whatever, sub, sub, sub sort, mm -hmm. like the cherry tomato of this and that kind or whatever, because you have a bunch of farmers growing them, but then you have so much data that you can kind of build a recipe around how to, how to do it perfectly. And that, if you feed that back into the system, then basically all the farmers are teaching themselves. So they're sharing this on a much, much broader scale, even across languages probably. Just like super, super optimized farming. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So along with monitoring water, what else do you hope it will be able to monitor? Well, as a business, we're trying to trying to find the highest value sensors or the high, highest value uh, things we, we have to measure in order to give the farmer the greatest value of our product. We can't just have all these features and then no one needs them. So what we do now is we kind of co-create together with the farmer and beginning we had ideas, you mostly had all these ideas, you know, this and that, and now what we're realizing is maybe that in the beginning we only need temperature and moisture, for example, because these two are the most important ones, mm -hmm. and we can easily scale to that, make it a, a robust prototype, maybe even a sellable version, and then go out and check with other farmers in a larger scale, is this something that you need? And then if, they, if everyone says, yeah, this is great, but I need this and that, then we can add that on. So we're kind of building this organic thing with the feedback of the customer. So right now, I guess it's mostly temperature, moisture, and light. And, and so right now, we're basically feeding the climate around the plant, but not on the soil, not yet. Uh, that's the next step, if, if that is needed. We're experimenting with the soil sensor and seeing how that goes. Um, but for the early adopters or early testers that we're having right now, they had the, a lot higher need in like knowing more about the climate as we humans understand climate so like the air and uh, light conditions mm -hmm. around the plants because that's what they're also used to i guess that's kind of connected because they they're used to these older systems or like that's how you did it in the past you had like one sensor for these conditions like actually only air conditions so temperature and humidity and that will control like the whole greenhouse so that's what they're used to, but now we're giving them a lot more detail, and then we're adding parameters, and then they can like feel about what what's the detail feel like? Is that giving value? Yeah, maybe that gives value to me. But then, what would it be if I could know where I have to water and not? So then we can like continue with that. So right now we're starting with the climate, and then continue. Because what we're hearing also, what our vision is, what we've seen, because there's research called uh, wireless sensor networks in horticulture, where they have observed that you can save a lot of water. And as Neil said, usually nowadays it's like they measure the climate as they feel it, as they, they grant that, maybe told them, you know, you go in and you, this is how the plants feel and this is what the weather is supposed to be like. 
But if we, in our vision, if we could understand the water needs for, for the plant, then uh, we could minimize the water consumption by a lot, mm -hmm. at least 50%. Because the guy we work with now, he said, well, I'm, I'm overwatering with, with around 60% just to make sure. I don't care. You know, the water comes. I mean, he doesn't have a problem because the water he takes is from like a lake. So he doesn't have the water costs or the water shortage, you know. So if we go to other countries where water is like really expensive or not that abundant, then, you know. But, but even in Sweden, Sweden's facing like a minor water crisis yeah. with the trying up of the water tables. Yeah, yeah. yeah and exactly. also reducing energy as well with the lights and temperature. Exactly. And one thing that, uh, that isn't that obvious with the watering, once you, when, when you overwater, you dissolve a lot of nutrients from the soil. So there are nutrients in the soil, which is basically the food for the plants. But when you overwater, then you drain them out into like deeper soil where the roots aren't. And when you stop overwatering, or if you wouldn't overwater, then the plants would take the water and the nutrients, but the, the, you don't have too much water, so the too much water can't drain away the nutrients. Mm -hmm. So you also, just by stopping overwatering, you minimize your fertilizing costs. Or maybe you don't even need fertilizer anymore. So then it's a lot easier to do ecological agriculture. And that's just, just because you're doing the watering right. You have all this like follow-up things which also get better. So what you do today, you overwater, you see, okay, the fertilizer doesn't take, so I just add more fertilizer. Right. And then you have exactly. water and it's just exactly. uh, there you go. Exactly. Then you recycle. So what, f what phase is the project in right now? Are you already implemented in, in farms around, around Sweden? Or? So right now we're, we're, we're testing our so-called MVP, minimum viable product, which is like a, looks like a lunchbox, like a small little, so we, we just really low cost, just have something that, that, that works, that can kind of show this is basically what it does. And then logging the data and today we'll actually go and show the farmer this is what has been generated. And then this see, is how your greenhouse looks yeah. when you look at it in more perspectives than yeah. just one. Exactly. So that's where we are now, and that's one farmer. And then soon we go to another one, and then we will test two simultaneously. And then, so by that we can keep the costs low, development costs as well, we can iterate a lot faster. And then from there we will go out and test more. But unfortunately here in uh, Uppsala, at the region, there is not many greenhouse farmers, professional at least. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking about, we have some contacts in the, like, the enthusiast farmers, which are willing to help us and then, you know, help us, but um, we're more interested maybe in the, in the professional farmers that actually go out and sell stuff. What about targeting academia? You have SLU, which does a lot of research. That question comes up a lot. Does it? Okay. <laughs> Is this a touchy subject? Or? No, it's, not. It's, it's just like SLU here in Uppsala is not so much plant focused, it's animal focused. And um, also we have had contact with them. You were had contact in, but it feels like they are kind of stuck in their old ways of doing things. This is not so uh, not so researchy, you know, this is, I mean, there's there's SLU in, in Skala, in, Skala in, in the center of Sweden, and then there's SLU in the south of Sweden, and those both, they do plants, and the ones in Skala, they do precision farming on the, on the, on the, on the, on the land, you know, on the, and the, so basically it's, that's their specialty, and here in Uppsala, we, we don't do that. That's although they have test greenhouses, exactly. and that's really confusing. They do have test greenhouses, but the main focus is on 
and ecology and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what's happening now is that there are outside people from the Uppsala community who have contact with us. They are pushing us into SLU. <laughs> so it's like, we're like, well, we've we've had contact, but they don't want to talk to us, or they don't want to, you know, get involved with us. And I said, no, let let me let me call this guy up. Let let me call this guy up. We're we're building these test beds, and we should have you there. We're like, go ahead, you know, we're we're all for it. But you know, it seems like we can't reach SLU. So if you can from the Uppsala community, that we're up for it. It seems like Bitroot speaks for itself, like the quality and, and the idea. I'm sure they'll they'll come around at some point. We'll see. As I said, the institutional motors, they usually go really slow gear, and really <laughs> steady. <laughs> so it's not like they're moving fast. But I think they're realizing, as you say, I think they're realizing that they should, they have to do something. That's, uh, they're building these test beds now and greenhouses. So they're doing stuff. So something's happening. Because even from like a scientific point of view, if you're growing hundreds of plants, you want them all to have the same growing patterns or the same growth rate or the yeah. same conditions. Exactly. That's the idea. Yeah. So, so, but, but it could, what is a problem is that if they're different ages or different species or all these different things, you know, I mean, they, they have all different needs mm -hmm. and you can't cater to all of their needs uh, like in a, in, a, in a micro habitat. You can't do that, right? Because you have, even though it's a greenhouse, it's a quite a controlled climate. You can't control every single plant's climate but what we're trying to do is we get this higher resolution we at least start to understand what the what the, the different climates in the greenhouse are like and then from there on we can maybe create these smaller microclimates in different corners of the greenhouse or maybe have even small walls in the greenhouse and say okay these are the younger plants they need this and this much uh, moisture and, and air temperature and, and wind maybe or whatever you know so we're just starting to kind of get a more understanding. That's usually what, 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 what IoT does nowadays. You know, you get a better understanding and then you can react. Then that's when you save the, the costs. And the, so have you worked with greenhouses of different shapes and sizes to figure out which ones are the most stable in terms of temperature? Well, in a way, well, we, don't, we haven't really worked with them. We've basically gone out and asked them. You've worked in a small one in Svalbard. Now we're working with the one that's 2,000 square meters. I have talked to someone that is 60,000 square meters. So we basically, we covered the whole range. I and my dad has a small one in the backyard. So I kind of, we have the feeling for it. But it's still, I mean, as I said, as a company, when you're trying to float, at least not fly yet, when you're trying to float, you have to find something for the, for the smallest denominator. How can I make money? Know? And, and so that, that's what we're trying to do right now, trying to find a highest value problem that we can solve for the least amount of money. Right. So were you two into agriculture before this? Did you have green fingers? Uh, Did you kind of, yeah, in my bachelor's I actually built a garden from a pallet. You know the shipping pallets yeah. made yeah. from wood, I turned it upside down. Well, not upside down, but up mm -hmm. uh, and planted um, stuff inside like, so that it's a vertical garden. Mm -hmm. And then I actually, when I was working on a farm last summer, um, for like one and a half months, I actually built this again in a larger scale so that you can have even more plants and utilize like old stuff that you would otherwise throw away and I used to utilize it, utilize it to grow tomatoes. Um, so, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a gardener per se, I really like it, but actually my family was 
surprised, like, wow, you're getting into gardening now? All <laughs> <laughs> your horses, I'm doing still my engineering stuff. <laughs> but um, I was always really interested in the sustainability part and like doing something good, but not for the, it's hard to say, but not for the sake of doing something good, but just doing something which also is good. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that, I don't know how to say that. But uh, you understand, right? So I suppose something that makes a difference. Yeah. Like, like a positive difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up with uh, my both of my, my grandparents, both sides, they are farmers. So I basically grew up on, on farms and I picked potatoes and whatever, all that stuff in the field. I went out with the horse and got all the hay. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm used to working in the field and I have all my, like basically most of my food when I was young came from my, my grandparents. Like, potatoes, tomatoes, all that stuff. So I know what good food, good organic food tastes like. So when you now eat the, the Ica tomatoes that come from, from, from the Netherlands or from Spain, it's like you bite into water. <laughs> so, and you can, you can take it, hold it in front of the window and you can see through the tomato. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, what? Something is wrong here. So yeah, that's, and then as I said, my dad's at home, you know, I help him when I'm, whenever I'm home with the greenhouse and yeah, it's, it's, it's a, so the, the taste experience yeah. is way different. That's also what I had when I was working on the tomato farm last summer. Well, like, I mean, they grow a lot of stuff, but mainly tomatoes and cucumbers. But they also have a cafe and restaurant, so they grow like 80% of, of their own food for the restaurant. And that was just a taste experience. Mm -hmm. But I think what's, what's a bit sad, what's a bit funny and sad is, is that people kind of, they forget what good taste is like. Because we, we were thinking about this, you know, when I mean, we talk to others, the farmers and so on, they always say, well, in the end, it's going to be, we, we're going to sell on, on, on taste, you know, because the taste is so genuine. It's a real, you know, when you grow tomatoes and you really take care and it's organic or whatever, you know, it's not this like fast manufacturing process where you just like optimize the whole process like they do in those, in those huge greenhouses, but then... I don't know, it feels like people are forgetting what good taste is like. You know, they see this tomato, they put it in their mouth and then they, okay, I just ate my tomato, check. Yeah. But it's a strange thing, like, we've now favored the visual look of the yeah. tomato as opposed to the taste. And that can be engineered, basically, the look. You know, you can, you can add enzymes or whatever to make it more red. Mm -hmm. And then on the outside, it's a nice looking tomato. But when you, on the inside, there's no nutritional value. So... And that, that is, the farmers we talk to, they, they believe this is, this is going to change in the future, but we're, we're not really sure because experience shows that people are pretty bad at, you know, being all this correct and, and uh, having good nutritional value in their diet. I don't know. It's, but then if it's going to happen anywhere, I think Sweden's the best place for yeah. it to take off. Can, can I ask you guys, what, what is your vision with Bitroot? If you, I can say Bitroot in five years. 10 years even. You mentioned something about international farms as well, like if it was in different countries. Could you, could you see this becoming international and being used in different parts of the world? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's uh, definitely part of the journey, I think, going outside, outside of Sweden. Um, and um, I think like the vision or mission is to give it to as many farmers as possible um, because then that's how the the system gets better and better at a lot, lot larger speed. Because when you have more farms putting in data, then you get a lot more data, and then you can make the system a lot better. And then also, it helps a lot more people. 
because we, uh, as we, as Alex said at the beginning, with the decentralization of the food system, that's a that can be a really really slow process. But I think when you make it easier for people to get up and start farming, even if it's just for themselves, but that's a part of the process, and maybe they get better and then they become full time farmer, or make it easier for full time farmers who have only a small greenhouse, but to take another small greenhouse to there without employing more people, because that would just not help their economic margins. Um, if you have all these processes and make them easier for people, then they can catch up and get in, get involved, and then the decentralization of the food system, which is also more resilient, comes in faster. Mm -hmm. And also you talked to this guy from Kenya, right? Yeah. They said, uh, this is interesting. Call me up when you have it. Yeah, as a product. So that's even like oh, wow. another continent. Wow. Because apparently the Kenyans, they they are farming also a lot, but they are also having another job, which is then in the town, so they have to commute, say, like a distance between Stockholm and Uppsala. And then you're, they're taking care of a, a greenhouse in Uppsala, but working in Stockholm. But then it's not just a single mini greenhouse, like in a backyard, it's a legit farm. Mm -hmm. So they have to employ people to take care, take care of it. But then they are only going round on their own numbers when they also have another job in the, in the city. So that's kind of a, it's a mouse wheel system, mm. but if they can have technology which takes care of the farm, or at least of part of the farm, or like part of the tasks, then this would help them a lot. Then they could maybe skip one job in the town, or I mean the guy was a teacher, so I mean, yeah, I don't want to cut away teachers, <laughs> but maybe it would make life easier for him and the family when they can have the farm and him teaching. Absolutely. And imagine they can save a lot of water down there. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. We can go over to the next topic as well. I, when I was reading through your website, I noticed that you had a full section about the SDGs. And I was really impressed that you, you actually took the time to write them out and you had not only the general SDG, but the, like the specific ones within the goals as well. Could you, could you talk a bit about this and why you decided to include it on your website? I think we founded the company on the basis of the SDGs. Yeah, it has. They have always been part of the journey, so that's why they're so central. Mm. They're basically. I mean, we grew from just being an idea in Nils's head to to join to to forming a company in December last year, so that we were two people, and now we're like, like eleven or nine, yeah. ten with all the students. Yeah. So within a short period of time. We and we don't we have, we don't have any capital to pay anyone. So people come to us and say, "This is this is really interesting. Can we work together with you?" Just like I did with the guy in Salvat. Kind of. yeah. mm -hmm. I was fascinated by his idea, mm -hmm. so I was like, "Hey man, I would like to help you because I think this is really good what you're doing." And uh, then it turned out to be another good thing what I was doing, and so it became a company. And now people are coming to us and say, "Like, hey man, that, that's so cool. You're having an impact, and you." generating really cool product or a solution and you want to help people and you're so motivated, can we do something together? And uh, that's just really giving. And we see that also in, uh, in, in the media, the attention we get. Like uh, yesterday, we, last night we came back from, I don't know if you know what Venture Cup is, it's, a, it's Sweden's biggest startup competition and uh, I think there were over 400 ideas total sent in and then in the region east, which is Stockholm and Uppsala is the biggest region, over 150 companies sent in their pitch basically. Mm -hmm. and we were among the 10 best there, so we went to the final gala and 
said this is what we're doing and people really like that and yeah, I mean there were really great ideas and you know, all of them were somewhat connected to sustainability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was just the red line. Yeah. There were so incredibly different companies but everyone had some social impact. Yeah. And that that's what I meant before when you have like this impact, this little bit extra in a way that you're, you're doing good but not on the on the humanitarian we do good for doing good like giving out food i mean that's a really good work but if you create something and you're doing good on the side because it's just help so good then that's that's really cool help others to help themselves yeah yeah, yeah. and you see that i mean and as you said sweden is, is is leading in this if you apply for 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 soft money they call it for vinova for example if you want some 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 money for your company then to validate ideas yeah you don't you can't even them. apply if you don't have any of these sdgs like they specifically write which of the sdgs are you catering to if you don't have any don't apply so so it's not just about one guy making money no trying to get rich exactly quick. exactly i mean you can get rich quick if you, if you hit a nerf and and you help like you help a million people yeah. with this problem and it's sustainable you can make a lot of money Mm -hmm. Which is the, I mean, it's probably the upside because usually people connect economic growth and sustainability as like two things that go the opposite way, right? You can't make money while being sustainable, but I don't think that's the case. You can make both. Maybe you're not going to get rich tomorrow, but I mean, the huge interest of even the big companies now, you can sell to a big company, you know, which is not maybe the, the main focus is not whatever, doing greenhouse automation or, or climate control or whatever, but they want to do something, but they don't have the means, or not, I mean, not the, because they're process driven, right? Process optimized. So they don't have the time, the years to put in there, not the money. They're, they're, they're shareholders, they need this and that, they need this much growth, economic growth every year. So they don't have the, the sources or the, the, the capital and the time to put in. But if there's a group like us, you know, doing all this sustainable work and they want to do it, then just, they just buy those guys, you know, and just say, this is now one of us, this is our identity now, because we, we feel this is, this is really good what you're doing, and uh, and, and the SDGs we picked. I mean, it's pretty much yeah. So we kind of connected. What what you said just for the listeners, uh, we we listed out. We we talked a bit about what the SDGs actually are. So maybe someone doesn't actually know about them, and then um, we kind of listed three the our th our three main SDGs or actually targets. Uh, so that would be about the food. So that you, the the target or goal number two would be end hunger, achieve food security, and improve, uh, improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. That's kind of our our heart. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also touch on goal number twelve, which would be ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. I mean that that can also be uh, seen in the greenhouse. But then also goal number thirteen, which is basically take urgent action to climate change. Mm -hmm. I mean that's. Definitely, what uh, motivates the whole team? If you just ask anyone, that's like boom, that's going there. Mm. But then, if you dig deeper, then you always come to number two and number twelve as well. And um, yeah, we kind of wrote a little essay, if you want to call it like that. And then even there below, we also we found we we noticed when we looked in detail on the seventeen SDGs mm. that we we kind of touch a lot on these number two, twelve, and thirteen. But then there's a bunch of others which are also like touched upon in a way. Maybe they're not the core goal or core target, but um, then we also have like some 
somewhere where we can also make an impact in these. And that's the cool thing about the SDGs, that they're so interconnected. You can't, I think it's really, really hard, if not even impossible, to only touch upon one SDG. <laughs> you will also always have an impact on another one. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really, really like about them, because it's like a network. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? I mean, from you, like from your perspective, that you want to mention? If you're a student, you're in Uppsala, and you want to work with sustainable greenhouse solutions, come to us. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for telling us about no root and thanks your for journey. Having us. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. This is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Best of luck to, to you guys with everything. Thanks. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Siani Podcast. Feel free to get in touch with any questions. You can find us on Twitter at Siani Agri or online at siani.se.